If you'd like to open up your Bibles to Exodus chapter 17 and verses 8 to 16. That's where we're going to be today in the scriptures. And today we're going to be looking, as Dean said, at one of the Hebrew names for God in the Old Testament. And that name is Yahweh Nissi. Yahweh Nissi or Jehovah Nissi, if you want to use the German pronunciation. Um, But Yahweh Nissi is what we're looking at today. And it's a name that appears just once in the entire Bible. But we will see today how this passage of Scripture that we're looking at, it, it, it is a name of God that appears in this passage, in this passage alone, but it becomes a core motif, a core theme that runs right the way through the Old Testament and into the very heart of the gospel itself. So this name of God is deep. This name of God speaks about the gospel. It speaks about the way of salvation and so much more. So I feel we're all going to be blessed and encouraged to understand what is meant by Yahweh Nisi. So Without further ado, let's turn our attention to the text of Scripture today. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar And called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. So, to get some context for this passage before we jump into exegeting the text, This is all happening just a short time, a matter of weeks and months after Israel has crossed the Red Sea. They are at this point in the wilderness of Sinai, and the people have been grumbling. In fact, the people began grumbling almost immediately after they crossed the Red Sea. They began to grumble just three days' journey into the wilderness that there was no water. 
And we remember a few weeks back covering this story itself, God turning the bitter waters of Marah sweet. They began to grumble again just a few weeks later that there was no food for them, saying in chapter 16, verses 2 and 3, the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And Moses cried to the Lord, and God provided for them quail and manna from heaven to eat. And now, a short time later, this grumbling rabble, the people of God, arrive at this place called Rephidim, which is a barren plain. It's a big valley, Rephidim, near Mount Sinai. In fact, you can fit a million people in this plain. It's very dry. And the people began to moan once again. In seven, uh, sorry, in Exodus 17, verse 3, we read about it. The people thirsted for water there. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? I want you to notice something. I want you to see that the people grumbled against Moses. They grumbled against Moses. It was to him that they made their complaint. You have brought us up. You've done this. You're the one that wants to kill us. Why did you bring us out of Egypt? But who were they really grumbling against? Who were they really directing their rage at? Well, Moses says in chapter 16, verse 8, when the Lord gives you evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Your grumbling is not against us, but it's against God. It's against God himself. Though the people were grumbling and moaning and whinging at Moses, Really, in their heart of hearts, they were grumbling at God. They were disappointed with Yahweh. And God took their moaning personally. How often do we find ourselves complaining? Having a little bit of a whinge, a moan, a grumble to our spouse, to our friends, to, to our family maybe? About some difficulty in life that we're having to navigate how often do we do this i know that i can raise my hand how about you how often do we find ourselves moaning grumbling whinging about some difficulty we face in life maybe not being fully aware that we're actually perhaps grumbling not to that person, but to God. I'm not saying it's wrong to lament. 
I don't think that's what the people of Israel were doing. I'm not saying it's wrong to admit that a situation is hard, but that's not what the people of Israel were doing. The people of Israel were doing something called grumbling. There's a difference. Do you understand? There's a difference between confiding in a brother or a sister in Christ or a friend or a relative and saying, I'm really struggling with this situation I'm in. I feel I'm in the wilderness. I'm hurting. I'm in pain. That's not a sin. In fact, the book of Psalms is full of that type of thing, isn't it? So what I'm saying isn't please be positive. I don't think the Bible tells us we need to always be positive. We're not allowed to ever say that something is difficult. No, no, no. But what the people of Israel were doing was grumbling. Why have you taken us out of Egypt? We were comfortable. We had pots of meat. We had enough to drink. We were happy in Egypt. Why have you taken us out to struggle? They knew what they were doing, didn't they? They knew they weren't really grumbling at Moses. They were having a good whinge at Moses. But really they were thinking, if we whinge at Moses, if we really make our feelings be known to him, then God might hear. He might think, oh goodness me, I've really upset them here. Gosh, they're really offended. I'd better do something about it. How many of you have done that before? I have. I have. When I've had a good whinge to my wife about how hard things are for me, about how much I'm struggling. Oh, it's just not fair. But really, what am I doing? I'm hoping that God will take pity on me. Poor Graham. Let me come in and fix that. But guess what? God never responded to the Israelites grumbling. Not once. Not once did God go, oh gosh, they're really cross. Let me just provide some water for you. Never happened. God never responds to grumbling, whinging, and moaning. Guess what? He responded to Moses' prayer. Didn't he? That was what he responded to. So I'm not saying it's wrong to evaluate a difficult situation, to say this is difficult, this is hard, I'm hurting, or I'm worried about something. That's not wrong. The problem is when we begin to grumble to somebody else, without taking it in prayer to God. To grumble about your life, about how hard it is, how tough it is, poor old me, yada, 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 without taking it to God, is trying to manipulate God. That's what it is. It's manipulation. And God never responds to manipulation. He responds to prayer. So here's a lesson for all of us. The next time... We find ourselves having a good moan about our place in life, about our job, about the people we have to work with, about that annoying person in our family that we just can't seem to escape. Let's remember that we're at this place, at this juncture in life because God has led us there. Brothers and sisters, God is sovereign. If you've been in this church for any amount of time, you know that's the case. The Israelites moaned and grumbled at God as they were there at Rephidim as if God had not led them there. It's not fair. Well, guess what? God led them into the wilderness. Did you know that? God led them into that dry place. So strange. Why would he do that? The Bible tells us by the time they arrived at Rephidim, 
that they were actually so angry, so cross at God that they were ready to stone Moses to death. I want you to bear in mind that these are the same people that just two months earlier had seen God part the Red Sea. I want you to remember that these people just weeks earlier had seen God supernaturally provide fresh water for them and fresh meat and fresh bread. They'd seen that, but still they grumbled. Still they moaned. Now I believe in the miraculous provision of God. I believe in a God who is supernatural. I believe in a God who heals today. But I don't believe, let me say this, I don't believe that supernatural occurrences alone are able to turn somebody from unbelief to faith because of this. There are some people out there that think, just don't worry about preaching the gospel. Just get someone healed. They'll believe in God. No, they won't. No, they won't. Only the gospel saves. Only a changed heart brings forth faith. You can see as many supernatural signs and wonders as you like and still remain spiritually dead. Because that's what this says right here. It's possible to witness the most incredible miracles ever wrought on the face of the planet and still be stone cold in the heart. Now I believe God works supernaturally today. I believe we ought to be praying for healing. We ought to believe that God will heal, that God will move. And that he can do miracles today. Hallelujah. But don't ever believe the lie that those miracles alone can save somebody. Only a changed heart. Only the Holy Spirit moving upon somebody and giving them a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone can truly give somebody faith. So as we're looking at this text, it's very easy for us to look at these Israelites and think, what a bunch of morons. You know, if I was there and I'd seen God part the Red Sea, I'd have been there with Moses. I'd have been standing by his side, rebuking them all for their unbelief. Not so fast, brothers and sisters. Not so fast. Because I think we struggle with the same problem that the Israelites struggled with. I think we struggle with that same problem. Because you know what their issue was? I think their issue here was expectation versus reality. That was their problem. Their problem was that their expectation of what it would be to follow God out of Egypt was different from what the reality was of following God out of Egypt. I want to ask you today, have you left Egypt? Have you left the land of slavery? You might look at me blankly and say, well, what on earth do you mean? I was never under slavery from Pharaoh. Well, who is a pharaoh? Who's pharaoh in the Bible a type of? If he's a type of anyone, he's a type of Satan. And what is Egypt a type of? It's a type of the world. What I'm asking you is, have you been freed from the slavery of the world? Are you free from the slavery of sin? That's what I'm asking. Have you left Egypt? Have you left the world? 
Are you relinquishing your sins? Are you walking in holiness? Do you hate the ways of the world? That's what I'm asking you. Now, if you've left Egypt, you'll be experiencing some of the same things that these people experienced. You had maybe an expectation of what it would be like to be a Christian. We all do. And I think when we're newborn Christians, often we have this sort of idea that everything's just going to be wonderful from now on. We're never going to have another problem in our lives. You know, sickness, we'll just cast it off. Or when it comes, we won't worry. (laughs) We think that we'll never have another financial problem in our lives. We think that we'll never experience relational difficulties. Maybe it was just me, I don't know. Maybe if you were just all born mature in your, in your faith. But let me tell you this. I've been a pastor 10 years and I've experienced this time and time and time again. Christians who are struggling because the reality of walking with Christ is different from what they expected. And for that reason, they begin to lose trust. They begin to regret leaving Egypt. We had comfort there. Life was happy. We never experienced as many problems in Egypt as we are now. Where are you, God? I thought it was all going to be sunshine and rainbows. But here we are in the wilderness. Here I am walking through trials and difficulties. Here I am experiencing anxiety and having to stand up in faith against it God I didn't expect for it to be this hard where are you that's the difficulty of expectation versus reality you know Jesus promised one thing and it was that we would suffer that we would suffer did you know that yeah we're gonna have faith yes as Christians we can stand and we can fight against the devil but you understand that word fight You can't have a fight unless there's opposition. And the devil was never bothered with you when you were in Egypt, was he? He was quite happy that you were there serving him, sinning, serving yourself, involved in whatever sins it was you were involved in. It was only when you left Egypt that the devil became a problem for you. He began to tempt you. He began to attack you. These are the problems that we face as Christians. Sometimes the Lord calls us to walk through places like Rephidim, wilderness places, places where we're looking around and thinking, God, why did you bring me here? But do we remember? Do we remember in Luke 4 where the Holy Spirit took Jesus to? Out into the wilderness. You know, we might not always understand why God leads us through difficult wilderness seasons in life. And sometimes we can be left feeling exposed and fearful and and doubting. But I think the Bible teaches over and over again that we're never to be concerned that God has led us the wrong way when we experience difficulties and trials. Because he's always got purpose in those places for us he's always got victory for us in those places hasn't he and so I think 
the problem we face is of having to change our expectations to be more biblical and to understand that every trial is an opportunity to see God move. Every wilderness place is an opportunity for God to break open a boulder and provide for us supernaturally water to drink. Every opportunity sometimes is hidden in a place of difficulty for us as Christians. And I think that as a church in these times, it's embracing those moments and understanding that what does God want for me when I'm having a difficult time? He wants you to lean on him more and more. He wants you to trust him more and more. Not to grumble, but to trust. You see what I'm saying? We just need to address that that differential there between what we expect and the reality. And we'll find a place of joy, I'm telling you, and not frustration. So Moses prays on behalf of the people of Israel. And this rock breaks open and water pours out and all the people drink. Just a moment to to talk about this because this is insane when you think about it. You know, in my head, when I read about this this rock at Rephidim, this rock at Horeb, breaking open and water pouring out, in my head it was always this kind of little rock, you know, this kind of size and and water kind of trickled out of it and the people came and they filled up a little uh, cup and they brought it back to their families. But I wasn't really thinking of the reality of that. There were a million people in Rephidim, a million. That's a city the size of Birmingham (laughs) in this valley, all needing a drink desperately. So how big would the rock need to be to satisfy the thirst of a million people? How much water would there need to be to make sure that a million people got to drink to their heart's content and more? Think of that. This wasn't a stone, this is a boulder. This wasn't a trickle, this was a reservoir. This is an incredible miracle. Now, what do, we, what do I want to say through this? Is this, when God provides, brothers and sisters, he provides plentifully. Plentifully. He provides more than enough. More than enough. And in fact, what's really cool is that some archaeologists believe they've actually found the place of Rephidim. There's this rock, and it's literally cleaved in two, and it's huge, huge boulder in the middle of this valley. And all around it, you can see the remnants of where this huge reservoir would have been. It's incredible. So God provides for the thirst of his people. Why am I going through all of this background information before I reach the point? I'm doing it because I want you to understand something. I want you to understand that before we learn about God delivering his people from Amalek, I want to show you that they hadn't exactly ingratiated themselves to God, right? They hadn't exactly behaved well. They'd actually behaved appallingly, really badly. They were ungrateful. They were moaners, a bunch of whingers. They had no faith, okay? No faith. They didn't pray. They whinged. They were ready to kill God's servant. These are not good people deserving of rescue. I'm saying this to make it absolutely clear to you that these people in no way merited what God was about to do for them. When God saved them from the Amalekites, it was literally the last thing that they actually deserved. He saved them not because of anything in them, but because of his 
love for them. He saved them because of something in him, not because of something in them. I want to make the point that this is why God saves anyone. This is why and how God saved you. Not because of anything you did to deserve it. Not because of some faith in you that he wanted to honor. You were exactly like these grumbling, ungrateful Israelites before God saved you. He saved you because of his love for you. End of. Now this passage here has a number of really important firsts. It's the first mention of these people called the Amalekites. Also we have the first mention of this man called Joshua or Yehoshua in the Hebrew. It's also the first battle that the Israelites fight after they come out of Egypt. And it's the first altar that Moses built. So who are these people called Amalek? Well, Amalek was a man. He was a descendant of Esau. Do you remember Esau in the Old Testament? Jacob's brother. He was the one who sold his birthright, if you remember, for a bowl of stew. <laughs> so Amalek is the grandson of Esau, an illegitimate grandson, actually, born of a concubine. So he's descended from Esau. And there was no love lost between the people of Jacob and the people of Esau. And the Amalekites and the Edomites, right the way through the Old Testament, are trying to destroy the Israelites and vice versa. And we read about these people, the people of Esau in the Bible, in Romans 9, verse 13. It says, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That's God saying that. And it was the Amalekites who were the first to attack Israel as they made their way towards their inheritance. And we can read a bit more information, actually, about how they attacked Israel at this moment at Rephidim, which I think is really important. We can read about this in Deuteronomy 25. It says, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. He did not fear God. Amalek came round the back of Israel as they were weary and tired and thirsty. Who did he attack first? He attacked the weary, the weak, the vulnerable, the stragglers. And he did not fear God. Isn't this just a picture of Satan? Isn't this just a picture of the devil and how he likes to attack Christians? Number one, he only attacks those who are following God. Notice he didn't attack them when they were the other side of the Red Sea. He only attacked them when they crossed over to follow God. Amalek attacked them to try and prevent them from entering the promised land. Isn't it true that the enemy attacks you to try and prevent you from reaching God's promises for your life. And notice this. He especially attacks those who are vulnerable. The enemy pays special attention to those who are straggling behind. To those who do not spend time in community with other believers. Those who do not value 
or cannot or are unable to or haven't got the faith or strength to be in community. This is why it's so important to be part of a local fellowship, whether that's here or elsewhere, to be in the middle of the pack and not straggling behind. It's also why we must be strong in our faith. This is where the enemy attacks. He's going to attack you at your weakest point. He's going to attack you where he already sees you having struggles. He's going to attack you when you're sick, when you're worried, when you're anxious, when you're fearful. He's going to come in at that place. Not where you're strong, but where you're weak. And that's why we need brothers and sisters to stand with us, isn't it? That's why we need to encourage one another. That's why we need to be praying for one another. Because we know that the enemy, he, he stalks us on our way to the promised land. And we need one another. We need one another to protect one another from that attack. Moses tells Joshua to select men to fight the Amalekites. I want you to remember that none of these men had ever fought a battle before. This is the first battle that they'd fought. All their lives had just been slaves in Egypt. And now they've got to fight a battle. The Amalekites, on the other hand, were men of war. These were guys who were battle-hardened. Joshua goes out to fight the Amalekites. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur head up on top of a hill. And Moses brings the staff of God with him. And it says that when Moses held his hands up in prayer, that Israel prevailed. And when he lowered his arms, Amalek prevailed. So Aaron and her see this and they bring a stone for Moses to sit on. You've got to remember, Moses is over 80 at this point. He's, he's an old man. Moses sits on it and they begin to stand on either side of him. And Aaron holds one hand up and her holds the other hand up until the sun goes down. And we're told that at this point, as the sun goes down, that Joshua overwhelmed Amalek. The victory is won, and Moses instructs them to write it down in a book to be recited in the ears of Joshua. And then Moses builds an altar to commemorate the victory, and he names this altar Yahweh Nissi. The Lord is my banner. The Lord is my banner. So let's get to it. What does this mean? How is the Lord a banner? Well, the Hebrew that we get banner from, the Hebrew word we get that from is nace. Nace. You say that? Nace. Very good, Darren. That word can also be translated signal. And this word shows up in a number of other texts in the Old Testament that are really significant. So let me read from a few verses where this word is mentioned. Comes up a lot in Isaiah, interestingly. In Isaiah 49:22, we have this. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and raise my nace signal to the peoples. And they shall bring your sons in their arms and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Isaiah 11:10. In that day... The root of Jesse, who shall stand as a nace, a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Verse 12 of the same chapter. He will raise a nace, a signal for the nations, and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. 
And Isaiah 5.26, he will raise a nace, a signal for nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth. And behold, quickly, speedily, they come. Do you notice something with that? It's really interesting. Do you see how the theme is always salvation? It's gathering God's people from the four corners of the earth. That's the signal that's set up. And the people come and they shelter under this banner. What's even more interesting is that this word appears in another very important passage in the Bible. It's the story of the bronze serpent. How many of you have heard that before? Snakes are released as a punishment for sin in amongst the people of Israel in the wilderness. And the Lord says to Moses, raise up this bronze serpent on a nace, on a signal. And all who look at this bronze serpent shall be healed. Now, how many of you remember where this story of the bronze serpent pops up in the New Testament? We all know John 3.16, don't we? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that all who believe on him might not perish but have eternal life. Well, the two preceding verses read like this. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So the Lord is my banner, Jehovah Nissi, speaks of salvation. And Jesus is saying in these verses, I am the banner of the Lord that is raised up for you. Now this passage of Scripture, we see salvation coming for the people of Israel from Amalek. And in the New Testament, we see salvation for God's people coming through Christ. And this passage becomes even more deep when we have the cross in mind, when we read it again. Let me show you a few things in this. As Moses goes up on this hill to pray, he's carrying a piece of wood called the staff of God. He goes up carrying wood to save God's people. Who else do we know who went up on a hill carrying a piece of wood? To save God's people. Moses' hands, we're told, were raised up on either side of him until evening. What shape do you get when you do that? The cross. God's people prevailed under the shadow of the cross that day. Just as Christ's hands were raised on the cross until evening on Good Friday... And he was taken down. So Moses' hands were stretched out and God's people prevailed. Take another look at this. Who was it who fought on behalf of Israel that day? It was Joshua, wasn't it? Yehoshua. Who was it who was fighting the Amalekites for all the people of God? It was Joshua. Joshua is a name that is a combination of two other words. Yeho or Yahweh and Yasha, Yasha, which means to save. So the name Joshua actually means God saves. God saves. And guess who else had that name? Jesus. That's Jesus' name. Yehoshua, God saves. Did you know that? 
Same name. So we've got Jesus fighting in the valley of the shadow of death on our behalf against the powers of darkness and prevailing on our behalf. Isn't this incredible? A foreshadowing of salvation. Just as the people of Israel, they, the young and the weak and the old, they didn't have to fight, but they stood in the victory of Joshua, just as you and I today stand in the victory that Christ accomplished for us. So this story about Yahweh Nissi speaks to us about the cross. It points forward to our ultimate victory in Jesus. This banner, Yehovah Nissi, is a rallying point. It's a place you ran to for safety, for salvation. So I want to say to you today, when the enemy attacks you in your weakest places, you've all got them, you've all got those difficult sins that just seem to come back and you've got to fight them again and again and again. How do you overcome them? How do we have any hope at all of walking in holiness when the devil dogs us, doesn't he? Well, in this passage it says this, if you will stand under the banner of the Lord, you shall prevail. If you will fight under the shadow of the cross, you will prevail. Nobody here shall prevail unless they stand under Yahweh Nissi, under that banner of the Lord. As we fight, and fight we must as Christians, we must always look to Jesus to have the victory. We always must trust in Him and look to His faith and His work on the cross to have victory over these difficult sins in our lives. And it's then that we see the kingdom come. It's then that we see God move. It's then that we see His life working through us. And Moses, again, is this picture for us of Christ praying on behalf of His people. You remember in John chapter 17 that Jesus Now, even now, he is praying on behalf of his people. Are you a Christian? Then Christ is praying for you today. That your faith might not fail. That you may overcome all the powers of the dark one. That you may uncover his lies. That you may walk in power over sin, sickness and death. That you might make a difference for him in this world. Robert Murray McChain said this. If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million of enemies. Yet the distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Finally, remember, Moses' altar that he built wasn't named the Lord is a banner. Nor was it named the Lord is the banner, but it was named the Lord is my banner. My banner. My final question for you. Is the Lord your banner? Is he your salvation? Today. Let's pray. We need to.